Well, amen. We are continuing our series, All I Want for Christmas, and we are in week three, week three of our series. And so if you've missed any of the previous messages this month, please check it out online or on our app, and all that information is in your bulletin there. Um, and so we pray that you will check those out and get into those. Uh, it has been a great series. I pray that you've been encouraged and strengthened by these kind of messages that we've brought before you. Um, as we said the first week, all we really want for Christmas, or all we really should want for Christmas, is what we already have in Christ, that God with us, that he has come to us. And we've been unpacking what that means. Uh, what does it mean that God is with us? And we discovered last week that we have a peace delivered, that we don't have to worry and be fearful. We have a peace that was given to us that was manifested in the person of Christ. And so because God is with us, we have a peace delivered, restored. And so I'm so excited for this. And as we said in that first week, um, and even as Pastor Greg alluded to, uh, everyone loves Christmas. Everyone loves Christmas. But they don't really want you to define what Christmas really is. And everyone's cool with Christmas as long as you don't really dive too deep into the Christ of Christmas. And so what we've been doing is also kind of diving into who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and what Jesus brings to us as the Son of God, as God himself. And so we're going to continue in that this morning. And so if you have a Bible, and I pray that you do, turn to Luke chapter 2, and we'll be in verse 11. So Luke chapter 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided this morning, uh, it's page 716. And so Luke chapter 2, and we'll be in verse 11. And so we're just going to kind of take one verse out here. Um, at our Christmas Eve service, we're going to dive more into this text. Okay, we're going to kind of dive more into that as well. And so we'll take a verse out here, and then we'll kind of talk more at Christmas Eve about this passage in greater detail. So again, I do pray that you'll join us for Christmas Eve. I pray that you'll invite family members and friends to be with you and to celebrate Christ coming. And so Luke chapter 2, we're just going to dive right into the text this morning in verse 11. It says there in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And I just so much in this verse. And I know we've read this verse Man, maybe just hundreds of times. Maybe for you, it's thousands of times. You've just read this passage. You know Luke 2, the story. You've, just, you've seen play after play after play about this. I mean, you can just hear this over and over again. But I think there's so much power in this verse. There's so much there that we can unpack. And I think if you're like me, sometimes we get to verses like that are familiar to us. As we said in our last series with the verse in Ephesians, and we just kind of read it, but we don't really let it engage us. We don't let it really interact with us. We read the words and we understand the words and we have a moment where that's just really cool. But we need to stop and pause and honestly praise God for this verse. Because I don't know if we will ever fully understand all that this verse is telling us. One day we'll stand before God. One day we'll be before our Savior. We'll see the wounds in his hands, the wounds in his feet, right? We'll see the wounds that he bore for our sins, right? He didn't bore those because of his own sin. He bore those wounds because we are sinful creatures. We broke his law. And yet we'll stand before him one day and we'll see the fullness of that word Savior. Amen. One day we're really going to understand what it means that he actually saved us. 
Now, I think we can understand it to some degree. Obviously, we know who we were before Christ. We know who we're capable of being outside of Christ. We understand sin. We understand all the consequences of sin that the Bible reveals. We can understand those things. But to really stand before the risen Savior in his heaven, in the throne room of God, before God Almighty, in the holiness and the majesty and all that is there, and will come before as a son or daughter of God, washed completely clean of all sin, righteous, holy, pure, a bride that has been made perfect and ready for the groomsmen to come. And we'll see our Savior face to face. And I think that verse is going to take on new meaning in that moment. I think that verse in that moment will go from going, yeah, he's my Savior, to he's my Savior. There's, a, there's an ownership there. It's, it's, it's almost as though we can hear David crying out that the Lord is my shepherd. There's this personal connection there. And I think at Christmas time, we can read the word Savior. We can hear that talked about. But do we really understand fully what's being expressed here? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That phrase, a Savior which is Christ the Lord, is unique even in Scripture. Did you know that from what I've studied, that nowhere else in the Bible will you read those three words, Savior, Christ, and Lord, in the same verse? You'll find those words in other verses. You'll find them verse to verse. But to all, have all three in one verse is even unique to the gospel. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Only here in connection with Christ's birth. Some have said there's a Trinitarian or in reference to the Trinity. A Trinitarian nature to these titles. Savior, Christ, and Lord. We see this in that Christ is also the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the anointed priest, the anointed prophet, the anointed king. He is all three, perfect and full and complete. And he is our savior. He is Christ, the Lord. And when you read those words together in that verse, there's so much power there. We spoke about uh, at the end of last week's talk, last week's message, that the people of God longed for that Savior to come. They longed for a Savior that would come and rescue them, set them free. In the Old Testament, there are numerous prophecies of the coming Messiah. Too many for us to recount in one morning. But Isaiah, as an example, writes of him often, writes of the coming Messiah often. The people of God read Isaiah's words 700 years before Christ came. Isaiah prophesied of the coming Messiah 700 years before Christ came. And the people of God read his words. And can you imagine the feeling of hope? As they're reading these words of the Messiah that would come, the hope that would wash over them, the excitement, the anticipation, the joy Listen, I, I know it's not what we want it to be, but one day, man, one day God is going to save his save, send his Savior, and he will rescue us. See, they longed for this Savior to come. They were waiting for this Savior to come. They were hoping for this Savior to come. But if we know people, we know how people can get over time. 
And I can imagine at times the people's hope would fade. I mean, think about this for a moment. 700 years. The initial crowd, they're fired up, they're excited, there's some joy. But maybe as some time goes on, you get a little, it's been a couple hundred years. It's been 400 years. It's been 500 years. Maybe, you know what, maybe we got this thing wrong. Maybe he's not really going to come. Maybe, maybe we just missed it. Maybe we misunderstood the whole point. And then that turns into, I mean, is he ever going to come? Is he ever going to arrive? Is God ever going to do what God said he would do? And I think if we connect with ourselves, we can understand we would be the same way. I mean, think about it. We pray something and a week later we're struggling with waiting on God. Amen. You ever, you ever pray a prayer more than once and you're wondering, God, did you not hear me the first time? Or were you just not paying attention, God? I know we would never say that to God because that's, you know, that's not respectful. We think it, right? We say it in our heads. We imply it to other people. But when we pray, we're like, oh, Lord, you're so good. I'm really annoyed at you. But I'm not going to bring that up, God. I'm just going to, you know, you're so good. Can we just be real with God? You know he knows your heart, right? So when you're frustrated with God, I'm not talking about being irreverent. I'm saying be honest. Like if you're frustrated that God seemingly has forgot to respond to a request, don't just, oh, oh great God in heaven that thou art and thy throne. I'm using all this big King James language. Just be real. Listen, I really thought that was your will, Lord. That I really prayed earnestly for that. I really believed that's what you were going to do. What's going on? And this is where people say, well, yeah, but we need to add, you know, teach me, Lord. And that's fine. We get to that point, don't we? I think we all get to that point as the psalmists do. But I love the psalms because it's just people being real. Man, Lord, there's a lot of wicked people doing a lot of wicked things, and you're not doing anything about it. Can we, can we not agree with that in our society today? You ever get annoyed at God when God doesn't bring judgment on people that you think need judgment, but then you're so thankful that God brings you grace instead of judgment? You see, the people of God read these words. There was an anticipation. Now, I'm not saying that everyone faded in their hope. I'm not saying that everyone did, because we're going to see when we get to the New Testament, we're going to see that there were those that were still anxious, still excited. We're going to give you a couple examples or one example for sure this morning. We know we can even suggest that Nicodemus was one that most likely was hopeful and looking forward to that. And we're going to talk about him this morning, really, but we're going to get to another example. And I think there were some that did, but I believe there were some that maybe were kind of waning in their faith, waning in their hope. Maybe generation to generation to generation, it just kind of, in that family, it just kind of waned. Where grandma and grandpa were really excited about this. They would talk about it all the time, and then mom and dad kind of talked about it. And then by the time it gets to the kids, it's like, well, it may happen one day, and I don't know, maybe not. And then their children end up growing up thinking, well, I don't, probably not. And if I can be real for a moment as a pastor and just looking at church history, not even just overall church history, just the last, I got saved at 16, I'll be 40 this year, just that church history. And as a youth, previous youth pastor, grandma and grandpa, it's great to set an example before your, your, your children and grandchildren for following Christ. But mom and dad, if you don't come alongside and reaffirm that heritage and reaffirm that going to church and being involved, guess what? Your children will wane. 
See, so many people I talk to, and I ask them, like, did you grow up in church? Well, I went with my grandma and grandpa. But my parents never really went to church. But if grandma and grandpa went to church when these kids were growing up, odds are they went to church when mom and dad were growing up. You follow? So somewhere there was a disconnect. And this isn't about making anyone feel guilty or whatever. It's about just being real. In the same way that the faith and the, and the hope in the people of Israel could wane over time because it wasn't being reaffirmed generation to generation to generation. In the same way, as a follower of Christ and you're raising up children, affirm your faith to your children. Direct them and guide them. You're not going to save them, but you can set up a pattern before them. You can set priorities before them and values. And listen, church is important to our family. And this is why it's important to our family. The Bible is the word of God and we're going to let it govern us. And for this reason, and by God's grace, if they choose to respond in faith to the moving of the Holy Spirit, those children will grow up in a Christian home and realize their own personal faith. And then they'll get married one day and they'll have children. And the same faith that you instilled in them, they will instill in their children by God's leading. And then you can sit back as grandma and grandpa and come alongside and be the cheerleader and the encourager and help in any way you can. And then your grandchildren will grow up in a Christian home. And if they respond in faith to God's leading, they will grow up and have children and they will raise their children in a Christian home. And as amazing as that is, and as true as that is, the opposite is equally true. If you neglect it, your kids will neglect it, their kids will neglect it, and then it just stops. But the power in setting a relationship with Christ before your children, I'm not talking about perfection. None of us do it perfect. I was so excited to hear this last week, just the other day, that one of the children in our, in our ministry here received Christ, not in our church building, but on the way to school. Because a mom and dad set a tone before their children to say, we're going to raise our kids in a Christ-like home. Are they perfect? No, no one is. But they set that example and they made it a priority. And that's just conversation. And I'm telling you, that's what it should look like. And so here the children of Israel have waned in their faith. Maybe their hope is kind of faded we have to ask, what did they even hope for? What were they hoping for? Well, I want to give you just some references here. We're not going to turn there for time's sake. I don't know why I wear this sweater. It is so warm. <laughs> Whew! I'm sweating, and it's not the spirit, you know? <laughs> okay, so, all right. I want to look at some examples here from Isaiah. And... I want to read these to you. You can jot them down for notes, but I'm going to read them. And then we're just going to kind of look at what do we see fulfilled in the ministry of Christ? So I'll give you two, and this is not exhaustive, but just two examples from Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14, speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah says this, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Isaiah seven fourteen. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah says, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, as we know, God with us. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. This is one of the more popular ones that maybe you've seen on Bible covers or t-shirts or things of that nature. And it's just amazing. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, 
the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We unpacked that Prince of Peace last week and we talked about what does that mean for us. Even Jesus' own word says, I will give you peace. You see, their hope was for one that would be God with us. A savior, one that would rescue his people. Born as a child to become their king. So this this Messiah would be born of a woman, a, a child, and will grow to become their king, their savior. Another reference you could jot down, we get into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Again, not going to turn there, but just Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. It says this, and she, this referring to Mary, found pregnant before marriage, she was a virgin. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew goes on in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 to quote Isaiah's very words as evidence that Christ was and is the long-awaited Messiah. See, they hoped for this one that would come. They longed for this one that would come, being born of a virgin, that would grow to become their king, that would be the savior, that would rescue the people, that would be the one that would ransom the people of God and set before them an example to follow, to know God, because God came down to us. Tonight, we're going to jump into John chapter 1, and we're going to talk about his glory being before us as the only begotten. We're going to unpack that tonight in our evening service, but think about that. God with us, Jesus Christ, took on flesh. You see, the hope that they had, that they longed for, that maybe was waning, it was restored. It was restored in the moment It was restored in a baby's cry. It was restored because they realized, no, God does keep his promises. You see, their hope was restored through a baby that was born. There is a sympathy that you feel when you look at a baby. Is there not a form of empathy? That you look at a child who really can't care for its own needs. I've always told the story that when we brought Anthony home for the first time, Sandra knew what she was doing. I was clueless. I had no idea. And so we walk into the bedroom and we got, you know, after wrestling with the car seat for like 45 minutes and got all that taken care of, we get him home and we walk in our apartment and he's all swaddled, which I had to learn what that word meant. Um, So he was all wrapped up super tight and just like a little, little bundle there. And we put him on the bed and I remember I stepped back and I looked at Santa. I was like, well, um, now what do we do with him? Like, I mean, I didn't, is he going to do anything? Is he going to? What's, I mean, what's he do? I don't know. What do you do? I mean, like a puppy you can play with. I can't play with that. What do I do? And there's just this sense of helplessness, right? This child needs everything provided from a parent. The child cannot take care of itself. And this is how Jesus decided to enter our world in the coming of Christ. He decided to come. He chose to come by God's plan into our world differently than he could have. You might wonder, well, how could he have come? Well, just go over to Revelation and you're going to find out how he's going to come the next time. See, when he comes in his return, it's not going to be as a helpless baby. It's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Where John says his eyes are like fire. It's just this, this passionate fire within him. 
He's going to come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But this time in his coming as our Savior, he came as a baby that was helpless, seemingly needed everything provided for him. He was not helpless, but he came as a helpless babe. And yet we know even in his coming, there is great power and great glory. See, again, he could have come any way he wanted to, but he chose to come this way. Christ laid aside his glory, not his deity. Where he came the first time, he came in laying aside his glory, not his deity. This means he did not cease to be God, but he allowed himself to be seen as just a man until his time was come and revealed his true purpose in coming. You see, he chose to live as just a man. Not laying aside his deity, he's still fully God in man, but he laid aside his glory. He did not go about demanding praise and demanding glory. He lived as a man. This is what Paul meant when he wrote Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Philippians 2 and verse 6. I want to share with you how the Amplified Bible translates this verse because it adds a little kind of explanation in the verse. And I want to share this with you. Philippians 2, 6. Who, although he existed in the form and unchanging essence of God, Jesus existed in the form and the unchanging essence of God as one with him, possessing the fullness of all divine attributes, the entire nature of deity. He was God in every sense of the word. But Paul goes on to say this did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted. And the Amplified Translation goes on to say this, as if he did not already possess it or was afraid of losing it. You see, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted as though he would lose it because he knew he was, is God. And so he laid aside his glory and he lived as a man And he lived as a servant. He lived as a slave to our greatest need, which was a payment for our sin. And he did it joyfully. The Bible says that with joy, right? He had a joy as he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he knew the purpose in what he was doing. And those that would come to know him being saved from their sins. You see, he was not man, then God, then man again. No, he was God and man at all times. And he laid aside his glory so that he could become the servant that we needed him to be. Jesus limited his glory, only revealing it partially on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. He humbled himself and took on him the form of a servant to be our savior. And there's that word again. And if you leave with nothing else this morning, I pray that you would leave praising him for being your savior. That he saved you even when you were unworthy of being saved. Maybe this morning that word would ring truer with you. Maybe it would encourage you to surrender an area of your life to Christ. Or maybe to know him for the very first time. You see their hope was restored and we have to hurry. Their hope was restored through a baby born. Although the world for the most part was unaware. Their hope was restored through a baby that was born. And yet the world was mostly unaware. In reality, there should have been more present to welcome the Christ child than a few shepherds 
and a handful of angels. Now, I know what you're thinking. No, Pastor, the Bible says a multitude of angels. Okay, but if you compare the multitude that the shepherds saw with the angels in heaven and the tens upon tens upon tens upon tens upon tens of thousands, then what we saw or what the shepherds saw in that field on that night was a small snapshot of what really is going on in his heaven. You see, compared to what could have been, in comparison to who should have been, a few shepherds, a few angels, welcoming the coming Savior of the world, it pales in comparison to what it could have been. You see, the people of God have been waiting 400 years from the kind of the sealing of the Old Testament. God did not speak to Israel for 400 years. No prophet, no word. All they had was the Old Testament. And they were waiting anxiously for God to speak again. And when Christ arrives, the people as a whole are largely disconnected yet, or while yet knowing the promises in Scripture. 400 years, God has not said a word. And yet things are unfolding. And as things are happening, the people of God were mostly just disconnected and unaware. And yet in that moment... The whole world, the whole course of human history changed. We sing uh, Silent Night. And yet, while I understand the song, I understand what it implies. When you read the angel's song, even though there was a small amount compared to what there should have been. When you read of the angel's song, it was not really a silent night, right? I just saw a thing that if you like the song, A Little Drummer Boy. I just saw a thing on social media that basically implied like, you know, if there was a little drummer boy that came to Jesus or to Mary and wanted to play his drum for Jesus, you could almost imagine here's Mary putting Jesus down to sleep. Just nestled him in. Everything's good. And this kid shows up with a drum and decides, I think he wants me to play for him. I don't think Mary would be like, oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's oh, lovely. I think that kid would be leaving with a broken drum. That's, I'm just saying. That's what would happen. Like, come here, little drummer. Boom. Done. Okay? But we read and we sing this song, A Silent Night. But it really wasn't a silent night, was it? I mean, the, the angels singing, the shepherds coming, all that was going on. Think about it this way, too. The city was so full of people, there was no room at the inn. And so the town is busy. There's a lot going on. So I understand the point of Silent Night. But it wasn't really a silent night. And, and now I want to step back a little bit and say, compared to what it could have been, it kind of was. Could you imagine if it was the full host of heaven declaring the coming of Christ? You want to talk about an unsilent night or a non-silent night. All of Israel, in reality, should have arrived in Bethlehem that night. Herod and his court with music and musicians and praise. Even Caesar, the great Caesar, should have come and bowed a knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of the world should have recognized. But by God's design and God's plan, that is not how Christ came. He came to a young couple in a lowly way, laid in a manger with no fanfare other than the angels and the shepherds. Now we also know the wise men do come. And we say there was three. We don't really know how many there were. 
But these wise men come, and they don't come the night of Jesus' birth. They actually come a little while later. We don't know exactly when. Sometime before Jesus was two years old, so maybe a year and a half or a year old. And so, yes, the, the three wise men come, or if there was three, the wise men come and give their gifts, and, and that's awesome. But still, uh, the Savior of the world deserved more than a few gifts. He deserved everything. You see, we see that the hope that God's people had was restored when Christ came. Although the world was mostly unaware, his coming brought a hope for all. See, a hope restored to the people of God is amazing. But as we read through the Gospels, we find out there was a hope for all to experience. Not just those in Israel. You're in Luke chapter 2. Go to verse 25. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. One of my favorite stories in the kind of birth narrative of Christ. Verse 25 of Luke 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. So this man, Simeon, is waiting for something. This consolation of Israel. This is the Messiah. He's waiting for Messiah. And he's anxiously doing so. And we read the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, was upon him. He was a man that was just and devout, that loved God and served, served the Lord and did all that God asked of him. He loved God and he was waiting for Messiah. Verse 26. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. It's interesting. It was also the Spirit of God that revealed to Elizabeth. Right? And John, when, when John was in her womb, when Mary entered the, the room, remember the baby leaped, the Bible says. And Elizabeth recognized that Mary was carrying the Messiah. And I've always found it amazing that the first witness was an unborn baby to the Messiah. And so it's amazing how the Spirit of God can enlighten and move and give wisdom. Verse 26. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So again, the Spirit of God reveals to him that this man will not die before he sees the Messiah, which is a kind of a, a powerful thing if you think about this. I mean, we don't know when he revealed this to him, if it was recently, right before he actually sees Christ, or if it was sometime before. And I can almost imagine like Simeon's walking around, like, and as people are coming in with their babies, he's just like, nope, nope, let me, nope, okay, let me, Nope, not that one, okay? Like checking, I mean, how, how long did he have to like kind of, okay, is it this? No, it's not him, okay, really, Lord? But it's an amazing thing that he's going to get, he, he knows he's going to get to see the Messiah. Listen to what it goes on to say here. Uh, verse 27. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law. So again, we talked about this before. He was born under the law. Right? As Galatians 4 talks about, he was born under the law. The parents raised him in all the traditions they would have normally had done. Because he's fulfilling every step, every prophecy needs to be fulfilled. He goes on to say this, And he came by the Spirit in the temple, and the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to, uh, for him after the custom of the law. Verse 28. Then took, him, er, took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said. So they're walking in. He sees Jesus. The Spirit reveals that's the Messiah. And he picks him up. He just takes him from Mary. That's weird. 
I always joke that one of the first times we put Anthony in the nursery, I went to pick him up after the nursery, and the light was off, and nobody was in there. He's like a couple weeks old, and I was like, uh, where's my child? And so we come out, and this was a few years back, obviously, 14 years ago, and so the church was of a size that there was a lot of people in the lobby, and I'm like, where's, where's my kid? Where's, I don't see anyone with my kid. And there was an older woman in the church that just decided, you know what? I'm going to walk around with Anthony for a while. And so she just, she was in nursery and she just carried him out of the nursery and she's just, just kind of bouncing around in the lobby and all that. And I had to kind of, excuse me, can I have my child back, please? Okay, guys, it's great. And then actually I'll probably like, you can just keep him for a while. It's fine. Um, but here, I mean, Simeon just walks up and just picks up the Lord Jesus. And I've always had to stop and pause and say, can you imagine that very moment when he picked up the Messiah and he puts the Messiah's face against his own. I mean, just think about that moment. Like, he has been praying for, longing to experience the Savior. And in this very moment, everything God has ever promised him is coming true in that very moment. The trust, the love, the joy that would be overflowing, it's powerful. It goes to say this in verse 29. So he's beginning to prophesy now and to testify. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He's, a testify, he's testifying that Jesus is salvation personified. He is the salvation. Then he goes on to say this. Verse 31. Which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So here we see that Jesus did not, in his coming, just restore a hope for Israel. And something they had longed for. He had given and is giving a hope for all. Jesus is the light to both Jews and Gentiles. Simeon, a devout Jewish man, standing on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, declares that the birth of Christ is for all people. It is for all peoples. Non-Jews were not allowed access into the inner areas of the temple at this time, they were seen as second class. Like they weren't even, well, not even second class, third class. They weren't allowed to have the same access to, to relationship with God as the Jews were. And then even when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they were still seen as kind of second class citizens. We see this even in the book of Acts. And so we see this, this, this division, this separation, that there's just this hierarchy of, well, we're Jews and we're better than you and they're better than you and they're better than you. And this, this division and separation. And yet Simeon, a devout Jewish man, stands on the steps of the temple and declares, we're done with all that now. There is no more division. There is no more separation. In Christ, we are one, the Bible says. There's no more division. A few weeks back on a Wednesday night, we were talking about some things. This is a while ago, actually, maybe. Man, I remember we were talking about something to do with Christ. And I think it was Dave Aldridge mentioned about the veil being torn in the temple. And how that tearing of the veil, yes, it symbolizes and recognizes that now we have access to the very presence of God's holy of holies. We have presence to the throne room of God through Christ. We don't have to go through, by the way, you don't have to go through me to get to Jesus. You don't have to go to a priest to get to Jesus. You don't got to sit in some box and tell some other guy all that you did. You can actually just go right to Jesus if you know him as your Savior. 
And so for me, it just was a powerful moment of remembering that. But then I, I love what he connected it to. He said, but it also removed not just us to God, but division this way. That we're one in Christ now. That we're unified and Simeon before Christ is even able to do any ministry, any miracles. He is declaring what Jesus will do. Again, this is the power of that veil being torn when Christ died on the cross. We are all equal in Christ. There's no more division. And if there's one message that I wish our culture would get, politics will not unite us. Finances will not unite us. Social hobbies will not unite us. Jesus Christ and Christ alone will unite us. It is what binds us together as the body of Christ. It doesn't matter your background, your social status, any of, none of that matters. In Christ, we are one. You see, Jesus is the light to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews obviously being those in the Jewish religion, Gentiles, any non-Jews, which are all of us. There will also not only be a hope for all, this light that is shined, but there will be a cost. There will be a cost. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And I always love when I read that Mary marveled, that she would marvel at these things and she'd meditate on these things. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. And for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What an what a interesting way to end this moment of prophecy. You see, as we're reading this testimony, everything is great. Everything is positive. Everything's upbeat. Man, he's going to be the savior. He's going to be this one that's going to come. It's all good. And then we get to verse 33. And it kind of turns. It kind of takes a, a turn away from what we would see as a positive. Verse 34 again. Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Here for a sign which shall be spoken against. Not all in Israel will believe. There'll be many that will stand in disbelief and persecution. Many that will say he is not the Christ. Some that will come and, and bow before him and receive him as Savior. And they're going to believe like the Nicodemus example we were talking about earlier. But then there's verse 35. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to Mary. He's saying, Mary, this is going to be a beautiful thing. It's amazing. It's God fulfilling all of this prophecy. But I'm just warning you. I'm letting you know it's going to affect you. It's going to pierce you. It's going to cut you deeper than you can imagine. The phrase will pierce in this text brings the idea of not just one time, but actually being pierced through many times. Being pierced through many times with a large sword. The idea here is it's not a small sword either. It's one like what Goliath would have carried in the Old Testament. We read later in the Gospels that Mary is brokenhearted at the foot of the cross. That her son has been crucified. 
And I believe when, when Simeon is saying this to Mary, he's speaking of that very moment. But I don't think it was a one-time thing with Mary. I think as Mary began to see the ministry of Christ and saw what was happening there as he began his earthly ministry, I believe she began to, again, because she marveled and she wondered and she kept these things in her heart, I believe she began to connect the dots and realize he's going to die. I mean, they know the prophecy. They know what's coming. And yet she continues to praise God and to glorify God in all that has taken place. While we understand that this is not necessarily comforting news to Mary, it is, in reality, the great and glorious news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross, that he took on flesh and dwelt among us so that he could go to the cross Give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe. Renee's song this morning was perfect. Like if I could have asked her to sing a song, I, I couldn't have come up with a better song. Christmas is about starting at the manger and seeing the baby Jesus and, oh, it's great and it's wonderful. But it doesn't stop there. You have to go to the cross and you see the fullness of what he did for us. But aren't you thankful we don't stop at the cross? See, there was the birth of Christ sinless life of Christ, the cross of Christ, the tomb, and now we can say the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb. You see, the word of God was given to us that we would know the truth. We know that Christ came 2,000 years ago, fulfilling promise 4,000 years in the making. Its best guess is around 4,000 years from the time of the promised Messiah in Genesis to the coming of Christ. If you use a Biblical understanding of the timeline. So 4,000 years from the promise, the first initial promise, reaffirmed to Abraham, reaffirmed to Isaac, and all the way through the history of Israel, and then Jesus came. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and you know what people think? Well, he hasn't come yet. He's not coming. Where is he? Why hasn't he come yet? But if he fulfilled the promise... 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years in the making. Then this means we can trust the word of God when it reveals to us that one day we will stand before the Lord in Christ unto eternal life. Outside of Christ unto condemnation. We look eagerly with great hope to the day that we'll be with him. You see, one day he will either return or we'll go be with him. And we don't need to fear or doubt or or worry. We can trust in a hope that is restored every single time we think of Christmas and the coming of Christ. Our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? As you bow there where you are. I want to encourage you to ask yourself, how's your hope? Do you find yourself full of fear or doubt? Questioning whether he'll ever come again? Questioning all these things that we've heard about eternal life and will I really spend eternity with him? And all these other things that we allow to Fill our minds. Let me just say at the onset that having doubt is not the problem. 
We all have doubt. We all have questions that just don't seem to have answers. We all struggle at times with really asking that question. As we've been studying on Wednesday night, do I really know Christ as my Lord and Savior? Is he, did he really save me? How can I know that? See, we all experience doubts, but I'm so thankful that the word of God was given to us to give us a hope and a, and a truth that we can rest in beyond our feelings, beyond a religious experience. It's something that is a guarantee that we can rest in. And so I pray that as you're praying there where you are, that you would just allow the Lord to restore your hope, the hope you have in Christ. The Bible says that faith is the evidence of things hoped for, that we hope in a guarantee, not like we hope on a star or we hope on a dream. We hope in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And by faith, we believe that what he said and what he did revealed to us in his word is true. And so maybe this morning you would ask God to reaffirm your hope in Christ. But also, maybe we'd be reminded that this hope isn't just for us. It's for the world. All people groups. All ethnic people groups of the world. Every language group. God loves every single one of them and they need to hear the gospel. So maybe we would ask ourselves, how can I be, play a part in getting this hope to others? Father, may you be glorified in all that was said and done. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Savior that came. For the hope that we know that one day we'll see you face to face. And so, Father, restore anyone's hope that is waning this morning and help us to share this message of hope with others as you lead and open doors. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? And whatever God is doing, would you come? Would you bend a knee? Would you spend the time in prayer, maybe thanking him for the Savior that he is? Whatever God is doing, would you respond, whether they're in your seats or here at the altar?